0: Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 19. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him in prayer and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for Your Holy Spirit. Father, may Your Word Before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are here at week number 52 in our series looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission, uh, an exposition of the book of Acts. And last week and this week and next week, we're in the city of Ephesus with Paul. I want to begin with PC. Now not what you may initially think when you hear PC, not personal computer or so-called political correctness, but rather power and control. Power and control whether out front or behind the scenes whether a public display or a private demonstration, whether ruthless or refined, we see it in people, including ourselves, who work really hard, who often change what we believe just to gain or to stay in so-called positions of power. Now, This matter of power and control has been a problem since the beginning. Well, actually not since the very beginning. Um, Right after the beginning. Shortly thereafter, we read about it in Genesis 3. The fall of man into sin. Where man, the creature, attempted to exert power and control over the one who made him. You see... Power and control is not just a problem in fallen man in general, but it's also a problem in all of us, in those of us, in those people who say they follow Jesus. Remember in Mark 10, the request of James and John, right? They'd been following Jesus, he had been teaching them, and they had a request, right? Their mother kind of had them request, what? To sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand. Why? To be in a position of power. To be in a position of power. And we remember what Jesus said, beginning in verse 40 of Mark 10, but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And remember when the other ten heard it, they were indignant and then just Jesus called to them and, and, and here's what Jesus said to him. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There they are, jockeying for positions of power and control. And Jesus rightly rebukes them and teaches them not only about what it means to follow him, but he's teaching them about himself. Worldly power versus divine power. Divine power that is given by God so that he is glorified and good is done to others. You see, our text today, Acts 19, 11 through 20, is all about power. It is a drama of power from beginning to end. Look with me, the first word, the first uh, verse, in its original language, it says miracles right off the bat. But it can be translated powers, and here's a way to say it, powers beyond the usual God was doing through Paul's hands. Right at the beginning, powers beyond the usual. God was doing through Paul's hands. And the final word, the final word in verse 20, we read about mightily and and this could be translated like this, thus powerfully grew the word. It's the emphasis at the beginning, at the end, power and power. Paul is in Ephesus for at least 27 months, three years. We're here in Ephesus for three weeks, and we're looking at the advance of the gospel. Last week, we saw the gospel advance through Paul's ministry to these disciples of John the Baptist. We saw the gospel advance through Paul's teaching that moved from the synagogue to this lecture hall, where the word of God became known throughout Asia. Next week, we'll see the gospel advance lead to a riot in the city. Today, we're going to see that to gain the attention of the Ephesians, the Lord kindly condescended to show power, to show the power of his work and his word in very tangible ways as the advancement of the kingdom of his glory and grace comes into contact with Satan's kingdom of darkness and death. I want to make a few comments about the city of Ephesus, that uh, capital of the Roman province of Asia. It's a pagan center, even though it had a synagogue, uh, Paul is really going to be focusing attention on the the non-Jewish population. It's a pagan center that's dominated not only by the idolatry associated with the temple of Artemis that we will pay particular attention to next week, but it's also a place where magical and spiritualist trades flourish and these magical and spiritual trades claimed to be able to control unseen powers we all know about the the public side of paganism but the private side of paganism is in the ancient world is this various attempts to manipulate spiritual forces So the city of Ephesus is most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans of all sorts. And in fact, there was something called the Ephesian letters, not Paul's letters to the Ephesians, but no, these little, these things written down and and that were used as incantations and magical sayings known as the Ephesian letters that various pagan mystics and others would attempt to use to manipulate the so-called gods. So that's the environment we're in. Let's go ahead and read verses 11 through 20, and then we'll work our way through it. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So for the next few minutes, we're gonna open up and explore our text and consider the powerful work of God. The powerful evil of Satan and the powerful word of God. First, the powerful work of God. Let me read 11 and 12 again. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice how it begins. And God was doing. And God was doing. Kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of how the Bible opens, right? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. It sets the stage and orients everything. So here also, yes, Paul is going to be working, but it's God at work and when it says extraordinary miracles, in one sense, what? Any miracle is extraordinary, right? Because it's, it's going against nature. It's an it's a, um, intrusion of the supernatural, as it were, into the natural. But here, it's an unusual word that, that is saying it is singular. It is unusual. It is not typical or normal. These are extraordinary, extraordinary miracles taking place and what are the miracles healing we read of diseases leaving them and exorcism evil spirits coming out of them here is the presence of the reign of god in its liberating wholeness people are being set free it's as if jesus when he goes into the synagogue and reads isaiah about what he has come to do and is how um, uh, Luke Luke, uh, earlier in Acts, describes what Jesus did going around doing good. And we have the gospel accounts of Jesus healing and casting out demons. And we re, when we read of handkerchiefs and, and um, aprons, they're kind of like sweat bands, we believe. Uh, Paul is a tent maker. He's working with leather with Aquila um, and Priscilla. And he's hard at work and he sweats and he's got a band of cloth on his head He's got a band of cloth around his waist. And these these are being used by people, taken by people, and people are being healed. I mean, recall when Jesus healed a woman who came up to him and touched the hem of his garment. We read about that in Luke 8. Jesus knew that power went out from him. He wanted to know who this was, He told her, your faith has made you well. You see, it wasn't just an abstract touch. It was a personal encounter. Remember earlier in Acts that sick people would be put into a place where maybe the shadow of Peter would fall on them and they would be healed. Now, when you see these miracles of healing and exorcism, uh, the skeptic and the mimic will draw the wrong conclusions. The skeptic, say this did not occur and the mimic says hey I think I can copy it well before we move on I want us to think about the condescension and kindness of God you see God is accommodating his gracious work to people's ignorance does that shock you does that shock you does it wait a minute We're not supposed to be ignorant of the ways of God. How could God be blessing people and gracious to people who are ignorant of who he is and how he works? Well, none other than the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy saying that God had mercy on him. Why? He acted in ignorance because of his unbelief. As I was studying this passage something that a commentator said struck out or stuck out to me, and I want to share it with you all. He said this, The incarnation has always been about God limiting himself in dramatic, nearly absurd ways in order to communicate to a fallen and absurd people. Get that? How does the infinite God make himself known to a finite people? I mean, the the incarnation is miraculous. Who would have thought God in the flesh? Who would have thought that God in his kindness would heal people based on the fact that they somehow wrongly believed, but that that if I just get a hold of something that this miracle worker, Paul, is using, somehow it might benefit me. The condescension of, and the kindness of God. Let's never forget it. We would have no hope without it. And so as we think about these miracles, uh, these healings, these casting out of demons, uh, I think we need to be wary of taking the miraculous for granted or on the other hand, being skeptical, being cynical about the power of God, in this case, to heal. So we see right off the bat, God powerfully at work through his servant, Paul. Now, also, we will see the powerful evil of Satan at work through his servants. Both those who know what they are doing, that they know that they're doing his bidding, as well as others who don't know. So we move on to the powerful evil of Satan. You know, this story, if you were listening close, is somewhat humorous and comical, isn't it? Um, if you were a playwright and, and writing the, uh, the screenplay for this incident, I mean, <laughs> do you see the characters involved? You see um, these, th- this demon-possessed man? You see these seven sons of a so-called Jewish high priest? This man, this demon possessed man says, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What's he saying? I command you, I order you, I direct you, I instruct you, I charge you, I demand, I insist. He is trying to apply his trade here amongst the people based on what he's observing in someone like Paul's life. And you, and you see what's taking place here. There are these, there's this power encounter. Actually, it's evil versus evil, interestingly. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then that man has some kind of superhuman strength. He, he leaps on them. He masters them. He overpowers them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is, this is a reverse exorcism. It's where the demon drives out the exorcist. So it's somewhat humorous, somewhat comical, but even though you could see the irony, you might get a smile or a laugh, this is incredibly serious because it's a power encounter that is transformed into a demonic manhandling. It is evil versus evil. You know, neither the Lord Jesus nor Paul are directly involved here, and yet, what does it result in? The unquestioned superiority of Jesus. It's been rightly observed, I believe, that this story is the negative of the story we read in Luke 8, verses 26 through 29 of Jesus and the Garrison demoniac. Do you remember that story? The man who lived among the graves, who cut himself, who was possessed, who, as it were, lived in the graveyard, and and Jesus cast out the legion of demons, hundred demons, and remember that man became restored and in his right mind. In our story before us, there are seven sons versus one demon, and it's a big problem, right? But in the story in Luke 8 of the Gerasene demoniac, it's Jesus, the one Christ, versus a hundred demons. And it's easy, it's no problem. In our story before us, we have seven sons acting big, but leaving battered. And in the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man, he starts battered, but he leaves restored. He's in his right mind. And here, in our story before us, we see the powerful evil of Satan in the corruption of the name of Jesus. It's an attempt to use Jesus' name. The name of Jesus is some kind of magic word. But of course, Jesus will not allow his name to be reduced to a magical formula. Jesus knows that people are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. He won't allow it. Because he, Paul in his ministry in Luke in telling us is is wanting us to see the right and proper use of the name Jesus. You see the efficacy of Jesus' name lies only in understanding who Jesus is, what he came to do, it's not the name in and of itself that's powerful. It's, it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus that is powerful. Yes, there is salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus, but the name represents who he is, the man, his message, the gospel. You see, Jesus' name has no secondhand power. It only works firsthand when appropriated through personal understanding and commitment. I think it's easy for us, it's easy for me to um, say, well, I could never be like these seven sons of a Jewish high priest that are going to use Jesus' name, one among many. No, I, I think it's easier, it's easy for us to do what they did because do we sometimes invoke His name and ask for His help and power. While we're not enjoying Him. We're not obeying Him. You see if we're attempting to do things in the name of Jesus. And call upon the name of Jesus. And we don't enjoy Him. And we don't obey Him. We're trying to practice magic. But although the attempt... To corrupt Jesus' name was made. We see here that the name of Jesus is lifted up. And when the name of Jesus is lifted up, fear falls on people. Look at what happened when these men got beat up. They fled out of the house naked and wounded in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Although God accommodates his self-disclosure to our limited and often confused capabilities, God will not let us mistake his sovereign power for a force that's subject to our manipulation. Again, recall what happened when Jesus healed the Gerasene demoniac. What did the townspeople, what happened to them? They were seized with fear. Why? They not only saw the miraculous, um, a, a man reborn in his right mind, clothed, but they saw the authority and the power of Jesus. Here, this power encounter leads to Respect. It's a recognition that Jesus' name is not to be manipulated. And because they now are seized with fear, they're in a better position to hear the good news of repentance and forgiveness in his name. You see, evil did not prevail, nor does evil have the last word. Rather, God shows himself to be all-powerful through his word, And by his spirit, the power encounter of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan was not finished here. After healing and exorcism came deliverance from occult practices. The narrative account written by Luke shows people moving from respect to repentance. Join with me as I read again verses 18 through 20. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. We'll stop there. Here is the word of God at work, changing beliefs, and changing practices in Ephesus. You see what we see and heard before us is the marks of real conversion to Christ, real belief in the transforming power of the gospel because Luke has not recorded everything that Paul has been doing here. Paul is preaching, Paul is teaching the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the the ascending to the right hand of God, the promised return is Jesus all the time. That's what he's proclaiming. People are learning that God cannot be manipulated. It's not magic. The people are making the break in word. Notice they confess and deed. They are burning. And this detail of 50,000 pieces of silver they figured it out. That's today's, probably even more, at least $6 million worth of books, of magic papers burned. Changing beliefs and changing practices. They believe, then they act. It's, it's the inside first and then the outside. Now, isn't it interesting For those of you who like to fish, what's the order in fishing? You catch the fish, then you clean the fish, right? The word of God, the gospel, is catching people here in Ephesus. And the word of God, the gospel, is going to clean the people in Ephesus. Just like fish, people are first caught by God and then they are cleaned by God. You see, bad religion is all over the place. It's all over the place out there and there's residual pieces of bad religion that are in us. And what does that say? Well, we've got to clean ourselves up first in order to be caught. Right? That's every other religion. Clean yourself up And then you'll be right with whatever God it is you want to worship. Not the gospel. The gospel catches us, saves us, rescues us, and then transforms us, changes us. We see the process from the inside out. And notice how it ends. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God is changing hearts, changing lives in all people, how? Who believe. What does Paul tell the Roman church? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God for the salvation of all who chant the name of Jesus. All who fill in the blank. No, all who believe, believe, who have received the gift of faith. You see this summary statement here of how the gospel is changing hearts and changing lives in people who believe in Ephesus. It's declaring the gospel's complete triumph over the, over the competition. You see, this, this, uh, this, um, uh, this, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, this uh, man who had um, an evil spirit, they, they don't win. The gospel triumphs. Earlier in Acts, we read in chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, early on, it was a great number of the Jews who became obedient to the faith, as it were. They believed the gospel. Here, it's going out to pagans. And after Peter's rescue and Herod's death, we read in chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And we see it here. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail with power mightily you see my friends the proclamation of the gospel has always has been and always will be at the center of the advance of a church's ministry and mission in Ephesus then here in Bellevue and northern Kentucky and greater Cincinnati now a power encounter I think we've all encountered the power of evil, not just coming from the outside. You know, we're sufferers. But also rising up from the inside. You know, we're sinners. You see, God powerfully works through His Word as the Holy Spirit applies the Word to oppose and defeat all evil, both outside of us, And inside of us. I want us to conclude with just a statement. And then a question. First the statement. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. And prevail mightily. Based on that statement, here's the question that our text, I believe, asks all of us. That's you and me. And all of us have to answer. Is God's word, is the word of the Lord continuing to increase and prevail mightily in your life? Are you, even this day, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is the Word of God so at work in you that your leading desire is not to achieve power and control, but to give it up like Jesus did in order to serve, in order to love, May God be pleased to bring various power encounters into our lives so that we will increasingly let go of our attempts to gain or maintain human power and control and instead lay hold of the power that comes to us from the outside and enables us to decrease and Christ to increase. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You have every right, God, to banish us and to sever any kind of relationship that we could have with you. And yet, you are merciful and gracious. And we see here, Father, that you, the holy and righteous and mighty God, makes himself known through Jesus, makes himself known through the gospel, makes himself known through your word. Oh, Father, may we continue to encounter the power of your transforming grace in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.